Chapter Seven of the Lady in Blue by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Cobron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joseph Mueller in the Gray House. The young green of the willows and beeches sparkled in the early morning sun as Joseph Mueller walked slowly along the riverside path that led out to the Gray House. It was not yet six o'clock, and few people were stirring. All around him lay the quiet of early morning the gentle sounds of nature's awakening which were the veteran detective's best aids to constructive thinking he stopped at an attractively placed bench and took out a clipping from a newspaper as he read he smiled at its flowery wording the elaborate verbiage of the small-town editor mysterious suicide was the heading the so-called gray house is the scene of this unexplained happening this handsome old mansion in its charming garden behind the tall gray walls has an ill reputation in the popular mind rumors cluster around it and in spite of its aristocratic appearance there is something sinister about the house chosen by a rich man for his future wife's present home if the gray house has had secrets to guard before this it now has one secret more a secret which will never be revealed for the dead are silent again muller smiled yes the dead are silent but inanimate things talk louder than the average person knows one must be able to understand their language, that's all. But yonder must be the gray house. He walked on until he stood under the high walls. A veritable fortress. May have been necessary when the house was built. It stood lonely then. But now, with the city so close, these forbidding walls do give an unpleasant air of mystery. He walked around the house on the meadow path, then back to the stream side. The house looked more attractive here, for the wide gate revealed the garden at its prettiest. Mueller examined the big portal of elaborately wrought iron, a fine specimen of a craft which is rapidly passing into the discard in favor of cheap factory output. It was a gate easy to climb in spite of its height, for the pattern of thistles afforded many a foothold. In the right wing was a small gate for foot passengers. Its heavy lock was cleverly fashioned as part of the general design. Big key needed for that, thought Mueller. Then he walked around to the front of the house, which opened on a little street that ran out from the main avenue. It could hardly be called a street, for it went no further than the big iron gate. The house was certainly sheltered from curious passers-by, for with the exception of the footpath along the river, there was no road that led by the house. Few people who had no business there went by the gray house. Mueller looked through the front gate. He saw an old woman come from the house with a basket of wet clothes and turn off into the garden. A big dog came up and sniffed through the gate at the stranger with a low, threatening growl. Good watchdog, was Mueller's further comment, pigeonholed in his own brain for future reference. He made no further examination now, but returned to the town for breakfast. Then he went to the police station for a consultation with Commissioner Senfeld, who seemed mildly surprised that the celebrated Joseph Mueller should have come to Salzburg in connection with such a simple and clear case as the layman's suicide. But he greeted Mueller politely and informed him that the dead girl's stepbrother had not yet arrived. Mueller took the keys of the gray house and asked that a constable be detained to accompany him. He did not wish to be delayed by distrust on the part of the two caretakers at the mansion. It was still early, not yet nine o'clock, when he and his escort rang the bell at the street gate. The dog was the first to greet them, barking loudly. "'Come back here, Pollock's,' called a gruff voice, as Buchner came up to investigate. "'Can I see Mrs. Diesler?' asked Mueller, but the lady was already on her way to the gate. 
"'My name is Joseph Mueller,' he continued, addressing the two servants. "'The constable here will tell you that I have police permission to go into those upper rooms.' The constable nodded to the two, who looked surprised, and not a little alarmed, at this further invasion of their solitude. Buchner went back to his work. Mrs. Diesler shut the gate behind the retreating constable, then led Mueller into the house. "'Are you a relative of the dead lady, sir?' she asked timidly. "'No, I am a detective,' he replied. "'Detective? Is—is there—is there anything more to find out about why she did it?' "'That's what I'm here for, and you would facilitate my work if you would not mention to anyone that I am here, or that there is a police investigation still going on.' "'No, indeed, sir,' replied the caretaker, somewhat irritated. "'The less said about that matter and about the house itself, the better. People talk too much about this place.' "'Hm? What do they say?' asked Mueller, halting on the stairs. But the bell at the gate pealed loudly. "'That must be the baker,' said Mrs. Diesler. "'Shall I come back to you, sir? Will you need me?' "'No, I'll ring if I do.' "'It's the last door on the right, sir. That's where it happened.' The old woman shuddered as she went off down the stairs. Mueller opened the door of the sitting-room, which lay bright and attractive in the morning sun. The big, handsomely furnished room gave no hint of holding dread secrets. The air was close, as the windows had not been opened for several days. Mueller stood at the threshold, looking carefully around the room. The dagger on the mantelpiece and a few dark spots on the light-colored border of the big rug were all that revealed the tragedy that had taken place one short week before. Mueller moved forward to the big bow window and opened that. Then he stepped down off the raised platform and walked to the bedroom door, stopping at the spot where the body had been found. He had the police report in his pocket and took it out now. The woman's head had rested on the threshold of the bedroom door, while her body lay stretched out, partly on the hardwood floor and partly on the rug of the sitting-room. The dagger had laid near her hand on the edge of the rug. "'On the edge?' repeated Mueller. Then he bent to examine the carpet. He started once and moved forward a bit, gazing at the rug with keen attention. He rose, but still looked down at a certain spot of the intricate pattern, lost in deep thought. "'On the edge of the rug?' he said again, this time with a slightly scornful smile. Then he turned and went into the bedroom. This room, too, was immaculately neat. The bed had been opened for the night, but its usual occupant had not touched it. The pillow and the coverlet, with its turned-back corner, lay smooth and unwrinkled. The detective knew that the dead girl had been fully dressed when found, but she had taken off her hat, her feather boa, her gloves, and probably her cloak. She must have had a coat of some kind, for the month had been cool for May, and Mueller remembered that the twenty-ninth had been particularly disagreeable and stormy, at least in Vienna. He made a note to inquire as to the temperature and weather in Salzburg on that day. But it was safe to take for granted that a well-dressed woman would wear some outer covering over her light blue silk dress when she went to the theater. He knew she had not worn a coat when found. The coat must be somewhere hereabouts, therefore. He looked about the room, but saw only the big hat, the boa, and one long white glove trailing out from under the hat, where the latter lay as if carelessly flung down on a chair. Mueller took up the hat. It was one of the largest decreed by the fashion of the moment. Three costly ostrich feathers hung from it, and a big veil of curiously spotted net, a hideous fashion fad. A rhinestone buckle held the feathers. She had money to spend, but little taste, thought Mueller and she was careless with her things. 
one of the long feathers had been broken halfway up its stem by the force with which the hat was flung down, or else her emotion of the moment made her careless. That might have been so. But if she was so excited that she forgot a woman's natural instinctive care for a costly hat like this, why did she put her coat away? Why isn't that on some chair, as the other things are? A fan and a silk reticule lay on the chair under the hat. Mueller opened the latter at once. He had been struck by the fact that there was only one glove with the other things. Its companion might be in the bag, but the little trifle of light blue silk contained only a delicate batiste handkerchief, a gilt bonbonniere, and a small folded opera glass in a case. The detective started out on a search for that second glove, but it was nowhere to be found. What he did find, however, was a long hat pin with a big rhinestone head. It lay near the dagger on the mantelpiece. The weapon did not interest Mueller for the present. He was far more absorbed in the apparently unimportant fact that the hat pin was in the sitting room while the hat lay in the bedroom. Of course, whoever found the dagger and laid it on the mantelpiece might have found the pin and placed it in its present resting place. But Mueller took no chances as to the importance of any fact, however slight. He reserved judgment on this one until he could learn where both hat and pin had been when the body was discovered. The missing coat and second glove were factors of importance. He must find them, but there were other things to do first. The old detective locked the door from the sitting room into the hall and sat down at the desk. Before he touched anything, he let his eyes wander over the meaningless jumble on its top and writing leaf. He, too, saw the calendar with its date of May 5th and the dried violets. He felt, as Walter Thorne had felt, about the woman who used this desk. Beautiful as she was, she lacked refinement and cultivation. But the keen gray eyes that now passed slowly over the objects on the desk saw something Walter Thorne had not seen. The painter's eye had read human character, the veteran detective saw facts. He looked at the calendar again, then took it up and turned it better towards the light. At the very bottom of the date leaf was a line of writing in pencil, the letters very small but still distinct. For the last time was what was written there, and Mueller knew that the calendar had been purposely left untouched after May 5th. There was some significance attached to this date for Elise Lehman, who may not have been quite so heartless as Thorne believed. What was it? What happened for the last time on May 5th? Have these violets anything to do with it? Hmm. What dates does a woman remember longest? A meeting with or parting from a lover? We are coming nearer the possible solution of this mystery. Find that lover. But there's more to do now. And Mueller continued his examination of the desk. There was nothing in any of the drawers but what was mentioned in the police report and in Walter Thorne's own narrative. One wall of the bedroom was almost entirely taken up by a long built-in wardrobe with four doors. Mueller next turned his attention to this. The shelves behind the first door contained a few pieces of expensive silk lingerie, highly perfumed. On one shelf stood a lacquered box. The detective opened it with one of the small keys he had found in the opera bag, but it contained only a fan, some pieces of lace, and a few bits of jewelry. There were two keys on the string, and Mueller set about looking for the lock that belonged to the other one. He found it on another shelf under a pile of underwear, another smaller box. This contained what he was seeking, letters in a neat little package. He sat down by the window and began to read them. They were love letters, as he had expected, letters written by a man of only fair education and very commonplace point of view. 
but what the writer lacked in mentality he made up in passion the crude passion of a lover who has found a response to his pleading he was evidently the man in possession the writing was the round business hand taught in commercial schools and some of the letters were scribbled on bits of paper in pencil written on a train murmured muller others were on hotel paper of various towns there were seven letters altogether and all written within a year the majority during the previous winter months they were arranged by dates and the last interested muller the most it was one of those scribbled in pencil and bore no date nor place mousy dear then you're really coming at last am curious to hear what you have to tell me but why must it be in Linz? i thought you were stopping with your brother but of course i'll go anywhere to meet you even to the end of the world a few hours train ride is mighty little trouble when it means being with you for a few days of course the firm might butt in and send me off in the opposite direction but we'll hope for the best i'll get there by hook or by crook i'll have you in my arms on the third at latest your adoring goldie boy muller groaned at the cheap sentimentality of this signature which was the same on all letters there was no other name mentioned anywhere and no envelope on any of the letters then she met her goldie boy on the third must have been the third of this may of course the last letter before that was dated april nineteenth hm elise layman was already engaged to baron walroth for he took this house for her on may first it was evidently goldie boy from whom she parted on may fifth and these violets were his last gift there's one man located already whom this marriage must have angered i'll have to hunt this goldie boy for it does not look like a case of suicide muller replaced the letters in the box locked it and put it on the shelf where he had found it the middle door of the wardrobe was a big double door behind which hung a number of gowns negligees and blouses the clothes were the latest mode and costly in material and fashioning one thing surprised muller there were so many gowns of the same clear light blue her favorite color evidently and an unusual one for a brunette she must have had very fair white skin there were at least four light blue street gowns and several afternoon and evening toilettes of the same shade the other garments too featured the same color one of the silk gowns attractively trimmed with old gold embroidery was hanging half over the next as if caught by some hook muller put out his hand to straighten it and in doing so caught a glimpse of spots on the front of the gown he took it out and looked at it there was a scattering of spots up the front of the skirt mud he said after an investigation looks as if a passing carriage had spattered her careless maid she must have had to put the dress away in such a condition the next compartment of the wardrobe contained orderly rows of shoes and on shelves above gloves and other minor articles of wearing apparel one pair of black shoes stood out of line and the heel of one shoe was thick with mud more carelessness thought the detective he took up the shoes they were black patent leather pumps well cut but rather large for a woman this beauty had a large foot there's usually something out about them all at least those with her antecedents however a large foot is no crime in a tall woman but she wore her shoes too small the leather of one of the pumps showed signs of strain over the ball of the foot woman's vanity and muller went on to an examination of the big box of gloves but the missing white glove the maid of the single one on the chair was not there in the further and last compartment were large boxes containing theatrical costumes and on hooks below the shelves several coats and wraps a long black cape trimmed with fur and heavy braid hung on the last hook or rather half of it hung on the hook 
the rest dragged on the floor as if the coat had been thrust in hastily by a careless hand this was probably the coat she wore that evening but why did she take the trouble to hang this up even thus hastily when she threw the other things about outside the other rooms gave muller no clues to add to his list he went down the stairs slowly noting the arrangement of the house the wide and handsome staircase rose well back in a square hall which received its light from above and from a big rose window over the front door there was another door which stood open separating the hall from a sort of vestibule into which the front door opened there was glass above this door too to the left was another smaller door well back of the staircase near it was a water tap the key of the door was in the lock muller opened it and saw that it gave out on a short paved walk a few steps only in length which led to the garden gate on the river side of the house just inside the door hung a large key evidently the key to the gate outside then muller turned to the hall again and saw that the door to the housekeeper's apartment opened to the right out of the vestibule she could hardly hear anyone going up or downstairs unless her door were open this was muller's observation as he went towards the door at which mrs deesler was waiting i thought you might be coming downstairs and maybe couldn't find me she said do you need me now sir yes i'd like to have a little talk with you come in please she led the way into her cheerful room and placed a chair for him she sat down at her sewing table herself now would you please tell me all you know about the case mrs deesler settled comfortably in her chair as if she expected to enjoy herself very well sir the two went out that afternoon she began the two who was the other why that was tony her maid of course i beg your pardon go on they came home in a cab after the theatre and went upstairs the lady was in bad spirits and captious she wouldn't let tony help her undress tony came down here and we had a cup of tea together the young lady rang for tony to fetch her some drinking water then when tony came back down we chatted a bit and went up to bed i slept with tony that night it was a nasty night and the wind was howling around the place and tony was frightened yes then it must have been about seven next morning i heard a dreadful scream then buchner shouted and came running in here saying something must have happened upstairs we ran up and tony was there white as wax and fell over into buchner's arms just as he got there when she came to she cried out that the young lady was dead yes yes go on said muller as the old woman halted in her report with a reminiscent shudder encouraged she went on told of the finding of the rigid body and the other details of that morning muller listened attentively then he rose come upstairs with me he said when they reached the upper floor he had mrs deesler show him just where the body and the dagger had lain who put the dagger on the mantelpiece the doctor did that did he put this hatpin there too no that was there before are you sure oh yes sir i wondered why the young lady hadn't put the second pin there with it she had such expensive hatpins they looked like jewelry she took good care of them then she had a second one oh yes you couldn't keep a big hat on without two especially in such a storm i see oh there's another thing did you find a long white glove anywhere next morning she might have lost it in the cab or on the way from the gate to the house no sir i didn't find anything but she couldn't have lost it between the house and the garden she had enough to do to hold her hat on and her bow up around her neck in that wind there'd been a sharp shower too and the path was wet so she'd be careful about not dropping anything into the puddles and if she dropped it in the cab i'd have seen it i had to look for tony's bag and i came up the path after the two of them i'd have seen anything lying on the path 
Yes, I suppose so. The young lady wore a cloak that evening, didn't she? Why, yes, sir, it was cold and stormy. She had her long black cape on. Mueller went into the bedroom, motioning the woman to follow. He opened the wardrobe and showed her the cape. Is this the one? Yes, sir, that's the cloak she wore. The old woman's tone was quite definite. The detective stood silent a moment in thought. You said it had rained that evening? Yes, sir. There was a sharp shower about ten o'clock, or maybe earlier. It stopped before the ladies came in, but the path was still wet, and it was awful windy. Yes, yes, that's of no importance. Mrs. Thiesler started to say something, but Mueller continued. What sort of gown did she wear that evening? The paper said something about light blue silk. Yes, sir. She always wore light blue. She looked mighty handsome in it, and she'd like to have people call her the lady in blue. It amused her to get so many light blue dresses and then have them all different. Tony told me. Was she as particular about shoes, too? No, sir, but she certainly wore those shiny black shoes, low ones. She had lots of pairs of them. Tony says they're the easiest to keep clean. Yes. Apropos, this Tony, where is she now? Do you still see her? No, sir. She's gone to Munich. Why to Munich? Well, when the young lady died, Tony put an advertisement in the paper saying a trained lady's maid wanted a place. She's lucky, that girl. "'Twasn't two days later before someone sent for her to come to the Golden Horn Hotel, and when she came back she said it was a lady who was traveling around, a colonel's widow, a rich lady. She liked Tony and promised Tony she'd wait for her in Munich, where the lady was going next. Why didn't Tony go with the lady at once? She wanted to stay for the funeral, and then the baron telegraphed he was coming, and Tony had to get her money from him. Maybe she needed it. What was the rest of her name? Schreiner. Antonia Schreiner. Mueller wrote it down. How long had she been with the lady here? Not quite four weeks. The lady hired her in Linz. Tony comes from Linz. Hm. Did she tell you a lot about herself? No, sir. Tony wasn't what you might call talkative. Mueller pondered a bit. How old would you say she was? Oh, about twenty-five or six, I should say. Mueller nodded and dismissed Mrs. Diesler, asking her to send up the gardener. While alone, he made a hasty search for the second hatpin but could not find it. When Buchner arrived, Mueller had him tell his story and describe the position of the body. The veteran detective knew that even the most intelligent and undeniably honest of eyewitnesses will vary in their statements as to any given fact, but his practiced mind could strike the average from the number of variations. Most of his witnesses here, however, agreed in fixing the position of the dagger as partly on the wood floor, partly on the carpet. It was the blade that had rested on the border of the carpet. Then Mueller asked whether the lady had been buried in the clothes she wore at the time of her death. Buchner thought she had. Alone again, Mueller went into the bedroom and took another look at the spattered front of the light blue silk gown trimmed with old gold lace, and at the shoes with muddy heels. Then he left the place, locking all the doors behind him. As he walked on into the town, he whistled softly to himself. Anyone listening would have recognized stray bars of the popular Radetzky march, and anyone knowing Joseph Mueller well would have also known that the old detective was pleased about something. End of chapter 7